That's the sound of my brain fighting with my heart a few years back when I decided to get off the grid, the electricity grid. Two years with no electricity at home in Sydney. Turned off the lights, the heater, even the stove and no TV. It's like reversing the clock a hundred years. It was a tough time. Reflecting back on it now, I realise I was confronting the biggest moral challenge of our time. The damage the human race is doing to Mother Earth. I was experiencing a phenomenon that many are now experiencing at an alarming rate, climate anxiety. As a freelance journalist and a teacher, my story is about choosing the road to renewed resolve to counter this eco-crisis. It earned me the nickname The Greenhouse Lady by my friends and family. But I'm Anna-Marie Reyes, and this is Think Sustainability, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. Here's what my friend and colleague Rod Chambers remembers about that time. I seem to recall chatting with you many years ago, came down to what you were doing at home, and oh, that's right, I was doing a story on, on gas, and, and so you said, oh, I'm totally going to gas. Uh, it's just something I want to do. What happened to you? What, what made you decide that you had to try and reduce your carbon footprint personally? It's really funny how we remember it that way about the, the gas thing, because I do remember that moment because I was so worried that you're going to think I'm a bit loopy. And I thought then oh, I can't make that impression to Rod because I trained these people. And if they think I'm a bit loopy, they might think I'm teaching something really crazy. This is the first time I'm telling the story because I was worried that work colleagues might think I've lost my sanity, so I kept it a secret until now. What actually happened was early morning, I saw this story on Facebook of a man who's got engineering manufacturing background. He got so angry, and there were so many posts on Facebook. He just said, I'm so angry about this, I'm going to protest. And so I went, what are you angry about? He said, well, you know, they want us to do something about carbon, but then if they don't come up with the right machines to measure how much we're using or not, we will never really know how much contribution in terms of footprints we contribute to the whole problem. I felt for his anger. I felt that he felt so helpless and powerless, and this was something that he could do something about. That made me start thinking about, I can actually relate to his feelings, and I actually feel the same thing. When the people say carbon footprints, I don't even know what it means. I don't even know how to measure it. I don't even understand what we're talking about. We talk about it all the time. We even report on it. But from a personal point of view, I didn't understand what it was. That's when it started. But, but you thought uh, that it was the electricity was where you could make your first major contribution, turning off the electricity <laughs> and just using uh, like battery-powered things that yeah. would re-energize with the, the, the heat of the sun and yeah. just little things that yeah. help get you by. But then you decided to go a bit further, didn't you? I really wanted the solar thing connected onto my window because I saw some people when I traveled in Asia, they buy these little panels and then they put it against their window and then they have this little wiring that you plug into a battery looking thing and like it stores it there. So at night they have enough from that battery where they have another output kind of cable that then they connect into some lighting. I want one of those. Like if only we can have something like that here in Australia. And when I went to Asia, I tried 
to bring one. And I just thought I was crazy. I was mad. I was going to be pulled out of the airport. What was wrong? You weren't well, allowed to import? We weren't allowed to bring in the batteries at the time, even though we want to use it for a hobby. Because I said it's a hobby and I'm exploring what it's like to do little setups of solar captures. And through that, because it's just very small, it's kind of that side of my iPad. And I tried it and I thought, oh, if I had enough of those in my flat, I could replace all my lights with that and just have my little lights. I put one in the bathroom, I put one in my bedroom, I put one in the kitchen, which is the main area because I like cooking and and I spend a lot of time there. And then for study, those LED lights, that's enough for me. I can work with that. And then I realized I couldn't because I can't bring in the solar bloody panel and I really wanted to. I got so desperate looking for these panels and I was quite shocked coming from the south of the Philippines at the time from my trip that we don't have it here and yet everyone's using it everywhere now, you know, in Asia. We're missing out on technology. And I realized then solar was only accessible to people that had the money to venture into and pay for big, big panels and have it set up. If you're in a flat like me, in the city, there's nowhere you're allowed to do that. Anything. No, well, you need a roof, don't you? Yeah. And in a, you know, a unit block, your roof is shared mm. and everyone has to agree to it and, and it's a huge bureaucratic nightmare, isn't it? So. It was. Basically what happened was I thought, okay, I, ha- I can't do solar. What do I do next? The next big thing was electricity. I started with the lights. I would do it when it became dusk. I'll turn off the lights. I'll put on my little lamps that I've put all day. I put them on the window where the sun is and there's always one for each room. If it runs out during the night and you're desperate, you can put a little battery like those AA batteries and it'll still keep going. So I started that for like about mm, a month and I couldn't believe how I could do it. I felt so proud of myself. And then I realized, okay, can I do it with other things, not just lights? Like, how would I do it for water? And I thought, ah, that would be very tricky. So I thought, it's not going to work with water. So there was lights with water. And then I thought, what about my cooking? But then my cooking was coming from electricity then. I have like a metal round stove. So I needed that to cook. And I started thinking, I'm actually so dependent on electricity. It scared the living daylights out of me. Like, I just thought, I can't believe this. Like, I cannot exist. I cannot eat. I cannot have my shower on a cold day. I cannot read my academic papers. I cannot do my work without electricity. And I sat up all night so worried about that. You wouldn't believe. I was up tossing and turning saying, why have we become like this? Why have suddenly we become so dependent on electricity? Like all our lives, our modern lives in the city, in the urban districts are based on electricity. So that actually scared me a lot, and that's the beginning of it. Scholars call what I was experiencing climate or eco-anxiety. Without realizing it at the time, my worry about being tied to electricity was to do with a deeper concern about climate crisis. Electricity cannot run without coal and gas. But these fossil fuels are the biggest source of carbon emissions, which is pushing our planet close to extinction. Then I came across an academic paper that felt like it was about what was happening to me. Dr. Tanya Lembeck's research was examining the psychology of climate crises among students they were teaching about environmental communications. For a lot of the students, I think that was a very confronting 
area of realization for them of, oh gosh, if I pursue the career path that I thought I was going on, I will be potentially contributing to the problem. That was a big part of, I think, the the themes that we wanted to explore in setting up the paper was our subject is complicated. We both do this critique of the communication industries, but we're also training our students to become professionals in the communication industries. And part of what that professional learning involves is skilling them up to work in mainstream media, which then we're doing this really close critique of extended conversation with the students. And I think in our research as well, we were able to have them reflect on that in an ongoing way because of the design of our research. We had this reflexive process. The students were actually writing down how they were feeling in relation to the topics we were covering. So a lot of the data that we collected from them was that sort of personal, very subjective exploration of these issues, these kind of inherently paradoxical or really conflicting kind of sets of priorities. I want to support climate action. I want to be proactive on environment, but I also need to make a living and I want to be a successful professional and I want to work in the communication industries. The students were apparently going through feelings of powerlessness, grief, anger, and even disassociation upon finding out that the biggest carbon emitters also have control over well-paid journalists with their PR machines denying climate science. And I think when it comes to crisis, like that's particularly challenging because it's much easier to switch off. It's much easier to disengage and it's much easier to disassociate. And I would say in our data, what we saw was there were students who were doing that. And we don't know exactly why that is. If it was too much to really, or if they were preoccupied with other things or who knows, there was lots of reasons why students are not able to be fully present in the classroom. But for those ones who are fully present in the classroom, what I think is important is if they do start to dissociate because they're finding the content very confronting and they feel unsupported and they feel like there's no hope or there's nothing they can do, I feel a duty of care to to try as best I can to scaffold into the subjects that I teach practical examples of things that people can do, but also trying to address larger systemic barriers to to change as well. Really talking to actions. And I think this is within the the climate psychology literature is very clear now is that taking action on an issue that is feeling oppressive, that is really getting you down, that is having a kind of an emotional impact on you. Taking some sort of action is actually a very beneficial way to support yourself and to support your mental health. The first step in facing up to what's bothering you, really, is to acknowledge it and name it. There's no incorrect feelings, you know, it's just on how we respond to those feelings. Chris Brower runs workshops with her team on dealing with climate anxiety on a daily basis. She's from the Postgraduate Learning Design team at the University of Technology, Sydney. You know, we're in this together. We all have different backgrounds and we might react differently to to threats and stresses. Potentially there's the fear of being labelled as irrational or, you know, too emotional when really, like I said before, these are quite normal reactions. And then we look at, at the science and at the research and what the psychology says of what's going on. Again, on a personal level, it is so liberating to see 
that these are all very normal reactions. And as soon as you can label it, mm. have you heard about the term naming it is taming it? That's pretty much what happens. You go, okay, now I'm feeling fear. And you can share that with the people that are there and, you know, share your lived experience. And the last section of the workshop, which then focuses on hope and love mm. and how important those are in this time of crisis too, and how those give us agency. And when you're teaching about how to communicate climate change, you put in all sorts of tools to help learners understand the topic better. That's what you call pedagogy. And so when you're learning about something that's critical or a threat to existence, it then falls within the realm of crisis pedagogy. A similar label used by scholars is also called difficult knowledge. Both crisis pedagogy and difficult knowledge came from the disciplines of psychoanalysis and also from teaching topics to do with disasters, emergencies, calamities, and even human slavery. Tanya's team used the theory of difficult knowledge in crisis pedagogy so students trying to understand how climate change is being told also learn ways of countering complex ideas ranging from greenwashing to climate misinformation. We needed help to theorize what we were seeing from our student responses. We were really like, oh, how do we make sense of all of the things that they're saying? And also how we were feeling as teachers. So we ended up really looking into this idea of difficult knowledge. Difficult knowledge, it's a useful term because it, it really opens up our understanding of these paradoxical emotions um, mm. around wanting to be conscious of the environment and, and take action on climate change, but also needing to have a, a career path and a career path that pays well and is secure. And the tensions within that, they're real, I think, for our students. When there's something existential like climate change in the classroom and you're thinking about, wow, what does this science actually mean for my children and for the future of life on earth? These are perhaps experiences that are more extreme emotionally than a lot of other content that comes into a learning environment. We've, of course, we had the pandemic as well when we would, there was a intersection of the beginning of COVID-19 and we had the catastrophic bushfires. And so there was a, a number of difficult, challenging things going on. Our hunch going into that period when we were collecting data was this subject is really challenging for many of our students. We know that because We've had student feedback that has told us that we need to provide more scaffolding for our students. We need to provide more mental health support because it's challenging. So we had that as background. And then when we went into the research process, it was like, okay, we have a hunch that this space is really important. Students really love this subject and they do. They've told us that, that this is really the seminal part of their learning experience at university, but it's also really tough. They're real and we don't want to shy away from them. We really don't want to leave our students in the lurch. This was central to the motivation for me in doing this work. You've kind of turned yourself into your own lab rat, have you? <laughs> yes. An experiment as to how far you could go. Is, it, is that was yes. you were sort of feeling like, well, I've done this amount and I maybe I can do something else. Is that what you were thinking? Well, I was thinking, okay, if I can do it with lights, what else can I do it with? Obviously, I couldn't do it with cooking because I need electricity. But what I did was a trick was I would alternate my days and cook for friends and family and we share food. And then I come home into my little solar lights and sleep. So I would organize every other day, say maybe 
twice a week that I would go somewhere and help someone cook and we eat together. I did that for about a month and then realized, hang on a minute, it's not fair on the other person, on my friends and on some of my family members because I'm kind of like assuaging my guilt for using electricity and passing it on to them. That's actually a cop-out. This is not ethical. Is there a way that I can do it without depending on them? That wasn't possible. So in the end, I said, okay, what if I don't have electricity at all? Can I handle it? Can I live in the city with no connection at all to electricity? Will I survive? There was no way of me knowing because, like I said, I, I was really shocked to discover that I am actually, I, I feel like I was a robot wired into electricity. <laughs> I feel like everything that I do, what I see, what I do, what I eat, what I write about, it's all connected to the grid. So the only way I could do it was turn off everything. That was hard. That was when I finally decided to do it. And when I did it, I was able to do it for two years. Off the grid. No electricity for me. No electricity for Anna-Marie Reyes. Nobody knew about it. What about the showers? You said that you... Yes. So what I did with the showers, because I also saw this when I travelled out in the bush in Asia, people would collect water from the local shared faucet in a bucket. Then they'll take it back home and share what's in that bucket as a family. And if it's a particularly cold day, they would just put some hot water on a kettle and then pour into the bucket hot water. I could just still turn on my cold water, obviously, but have my bucket and have my shower through that bucket so I have a collection of water. Or I would turn on the shower cold. But I noticed the only way I could do that is if I I changed the schedule when I took my showers. So I'll take my showers on the hottest part of the day. I did go home at one stage at lunchtime to just have my quick shower. So I'd use my two-hour break to just go home, have a quick shower, because it's the hottest time of the day, and then come back and continue my work. And that kind of affected my lifestyle a bit. Yeah, that was the biggest thing for me, that it affected my lifestyle. So all this takes time, doesn't it? It's, it it's time-consuming, it all of these things. It completely changed my yeah. lifestyle. Being off the grid for that long made me realise that for this to make sense for me, I needed to name what I was feeling inside. And yes, I believe I was going through affective emotions, a realisation that I was reacting to an existential crisis but couldn't name it. It's like my brain knows it's to do with climate crisis, but my emotions hasn't caught up with it because it's just too big to come to terms with. What I just described there is also about confronting difficult knowledge. In the tradition of psychoanalysis, this kind of knowledge are the things that we find threatening to our survival. It's too close to the bone, but because it's so real and he now, I feel the need to face it and do something about it. Yet I can't quite touch how this sense of urgency really feels inside. It's like being paralyzed from your neck down while your brain and your heart is registering everything and pushing you to move away from that state. It soon dawned on me that what I was feeling, this sense of desperation to fix the problem and not quite knowing how to go about it, is what many around me, like Tanya's team and her students, were going through. That was a great feeling, because a flicker of hope started to stir inside of me. I mean, we're all on the same boat after all. We're all grappling with eco-crisis. That's fantastic. And if that's what 
happen for you as far as you felt a sense of responsibility, a sense of urgency, and you acted on it and that has moved you forward on your own journey. That's good outcome. So there's so much that we, we hear all the time now and a lot of it's quite technological or very scientific, but like you say, it is something that I think in terms of communication needs to become much more accessible. We need great communicators to help us to understand what is this entity, carbon, and how can we grapple with it in more effective ways and in more meaningful ways in our own lives that work for us. Were you completely off the grid as you could be, do you think? You'd gone pretty much as far as you could go? Yes, I did. It's such an important issue, climate change, climate crisis, and our carbon footprints, that if you don't deal with it in your personal self deeply, and you just write stories about it, it could leave you stuck one day. And I had to get myself unstuck from that by finding out where do I stand in all of these? I mean, I do so many reports about the environment because I love the environment. I love climate stuff. I love forests. I love anything that's to do with nature. And I thought, I really need to confront this inside of me. The only way I could do it was test. Can I actually do it just off the grid completely? And gradually, I did. And so you said this was for two years. So what mm. happened towards the end of the two years? Near the end of the two years... I was so proud of myself and I said it's possible except that you would need to change your lifestyle extremely for it to work because for example I'm so used to just turning on and off the lights with my finger I had to stop doing that I was so used to just turning on the tap and getting my hot water I was so used to putting on the kettle every morning it was just like reorienting my body in terms of where I went in the morning because I didn't have that in the morning anymore putting on the kettle just like that and because I changed my lifestyle completely which is I had to meditate every morning and tell myself I'm not mad I would do that like for 20 minutes every morning which I never used to do kind of helped your mental health by doing that you were I, doing it but then as you kept doing it you sort of felt like well this is actually helping me anyway yeah, yeah? I was much much healthier myself in terms of where I stood on climate change as well. It made me realize that I am so getting worried about this and so guilty that my generation is passing this on to the next generation, my daughter's generation, that I, I went this far. So it made me recalibrate my goals in life. It actually made me think further out, like I started zooming out of my own life and started thinking of like what footprint is, in what form does it come? Is there a more accurate way of understanding it? And is it really crucial for climate crisis to go deeper with carbon? Because at the time we were all thinking about renewables. Uh, we were thinking about going back to nature. We were thinking about changing our diet so we don't send methane up into the greenhouse. We were never really thinking about any further than just carbon footprints. And so as I slowly considered my next options after being off the grid for two years, I could feel my heart and brain at loggerheads with each other again. My head is saying, you have to get out of the cocooned safety of being off the grid. And my heart is saying, what are you going to do next? You can't just be off the grid forever. There are 25 million of you out there. What about them? It can't just be about you, surely. Your family, friends, and that human contact. You have to get out of your cave. This is what my heart was saying. 
There's many other aspects that are also part of the process. Community, doing projects together, you with your radio station and the podcast you're doing, you know, that's you bringing your skills, something that brings you joy and something that needs to be done. We need to communicate these things out to the wider world. So you're already there. Like a sudden epiphany in slow motion, in the end, my head and heart came together and said it's time to just to find another road out of this anxiety. Usually, when my brain and heart crosses pathways, I tend to revert to listening to other people's stories to make sense of mine. I resolved then to face my fear of the unknown and get to know carbon more. I told myself that it didn't matter even if it got too technical to understand. I felt the need to wrap my head around carbon. What is it really and what role does it play with climate change? I thought the time I weaned myself from electricity, even if it was only for two years, cannot go to waste. Now, out of climate anxiety, I'm headed to my next journey, diving into carbon and investigating its intricacies with its interactions with climate change. So it took me about three months after that to finally have the courage to go downstairs one day when no one's around in the building and put back the fuse. My fuse. This series is made possible by support from 2SER Radio and the University of Technology Sydney, and it's heard around Australia on the Community Media Radio Network. Thank you for our Indigenous Elders, past and present, for letting me tell this story on Gadigal land. Listen to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. And I'm Anne-Marie Reyes. Thank you for your company.